You're listening to The Exchange on Siouxland Public Media. I'm Mary Hartnett. On today's program, as part of Black History Month, we attend a special event at the Sioux City Public Museum that focuses on talented black athletes in Siouxland and Central High School before it closed in 1972. Also, we talk with the director of the Northwest Area Education Agency in Sioux City about the effort by Governor Reynolds to centralize control of the AEAs in the Department of Education. The bill is tabled for now, but could still move forward this session. We also have another small wonder from Jim Scott. Today, we hear about the Sioux City ghosts. But first... A look at the news. Republicans on a House subcommittee advanced Governor Kim Reynolds' bill Tuesday that would require transgender Iowans to include their sex at birth on their driver's license. It would also define terms like man, woman, mother, and father in state law based on a person's sex at birth. The bill says, quote, separate accommodations are not inherently unequal, and it would allow certain facilities to separate people based on their sex at birth. Transgender Iowans and their allies spoke out against the bill saying it violates privacy, promotes discrimination, and puts transgender people in danger. State House Democrats have some questions about a multi-million dollar acquisition of a Lee County fertilizer plant by a Coke Industries subsidiary. Dutch company OCI Global announced the $3.5 billion sale in December. As the deal awaits regulatory approval, Sioux City Democratic Representative J.D. Schulten and the rest of his caucus are asking regulators to look into the impact the consolidation could have on fertilizer prices. Coke Ag and Energy Solutions already owns one fertilizer plant in Fort Dodge. In a letter, House Democrats question what the future is for the plant's 260 employees and the $500 million in incentives that were used to locate the plant in Weaver in 2017. When you go out uh, and ask any farmer, they're being squeezed on the input side and on the market side. Ask any row crop farmer and fertilizer is one of the number one costs they'll, they'll bring up as an issue. We are exploiting our farmers, having to pay record costs when it comes to fertilizer. Candidates for city and school board elections would appear on the ballot with party labels under a bill Republican lawmakers advanced out of a subcommittee on Tuesday. Supporters say the change would reflect the reality of the traditionally nonpartisan races, which have seen increased attention and money from local political parties and statewide partisan organizations in recent years. The bill calls for candidates for city and school board offices to be nominated via a primary election and all other other methods of nominating candidates for those offices would be removed. The primary would be held the first Tuesday in October before the November election when city and school offices are up for election. Candidates would need to gather between 10 and 100 signatures from voters, depending on the office, and to appear on the primary ballot. The cost of conducting the primary election would have to be paid by the city or school district. And moments of silence were observed in the Iowa House and Senate this week to honor former Iowa Ag Secretary Bill Northey, who died unexpectedly at the age of 64 this week. Northey served more than a decade as state Ag Secretary before he was appointed as a USDA Undersecretary during the Trump administration. Northey had been CEO of the Agribusiness Association of Iowa since last March. He was born and raised in Spirit Lake, Iowa.
You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Mary Hartnett. Iowa Senate Republicans have moved a bill that would overhaul the state's area education agencies forward out of a subcommittee last week, but Republicans in the House declined to advance it. Both are still exploring options to reform the state's special education system. Governor Reynolds wants to change how the state provides services to students with disabilities. After hundreds of parents, teachers, and students voiced concerns, however, Reynolds made several significant concessions to her plan. However, her revised proposal is still facing a lot of pushback from education advocates and state lawmakers. Reynolds' bill would make several changes to Iowa's AEA agencies. Currently, school districts are required to contact their local AEA to provide services for students with disabilities. The governor's plan would instead give school districts full control over state and federal special ed funding. I spoke with the chief administrator for the Northwest Iowa Area Education Agency in Sioux City. Dan Cox said he and other AEA administrators were rather shocked when they found out about the bill. Very surprised. Uh, we, you know, I've been here for just over five years, and it seems like every year or every other year there's talk at the legislature about um, reducing the number of AEAs. But to have the governor come out with a 123-page bill that was so um, big in its impact, that caught everybody off guard. There was some conversation about um, taking a look at the structure of the AEAs and maybe doing some kind of comprehensive audit of the whole thing. And some people I talked to about that said that's what they thought would happen before anything like this would happen. So they were surprised, too. Exactly. The governor had said a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, that she wanted to have a comprehensive review of the area education agencies. We would welcome that, uh, but we didn't. we didn't get that. Instead, we got a bill um, produced by a a company from the East Coast uh, that was pretty far-reaching. Looking at the situation now, you've got the nine AEAs, and this would change who was in charge of the AEAs. There'd be the Department of Education, a very centrally located control. How would that affect the AEAs and and what you guys do? So you're right. There there were 133 uh, references in the bill that that now is on pause that would have transferred power from a locally elected AEA board or the State Board of Education and given all of that authority just to the director of the Department of Education. So that person, he or she, would determine our staffing, our budgets, uh, what we're allowed to do and not allowed to do, not the people who are actually where the AEA is located, not the ones who were chosen by uh, the school boards and Uh, So that was something that was a big concern to us. I heard some people speaking at the hearing about, you know, how their children were helped by the AEA they're in, whether it was a hearing issue or a reading issue, and how closely they worked with them. And they were concerned that it would be hard to maintain that if it was just a centrally controlled kind of thing. And so I think that's a, a great example of all of the questions that the public had. There were thousands of questions uh, that the bill generated and not very many answers. And so it led people to then speculate, wow, what, what will happen? Well, I can't tell. And that sense of panic uh, and concern is what you saw. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful now that the bill has um, come to a halt that the legislators will engage the public. If, if there's something that's going to move forward, involve people, involve the parents, involve AEA staff, teachers, principals, 
superintendents and community members because we all have insights to provide to help strengthen the system. Uh, don't let it just be an outside source that uh, presents the change to us. From what I've read, the local superintendents are concerned about this as well, even though they said, we're giving the power to you, we're giving the money to you to spend. But my question is, where else would they spend it? Iowa is not exactly filled with service providers of this kind of of thing, is it? I've not seen much. So that was one of the questions. uh, And and schools would have had that option to go with a private provider, stick with the AEA, or just take on all the responsibility themselves. And so, again, uh, is this a step toward more privatization of education, or are there providers that would step in, and at what cost, uh, with what kind of follow-through, who would remain with the AEA system, and what happens when that system falls apart as schools decide to do their own thing? That's why the area education agencies were created 50 years ago, because we had a situation with superintendents choosing, and it led to a lot of inequity. And the legislature and the governor at the time, all Republicans, said, we can do better. So that's what we want. We want to do better. We don't want to step back. I think, too, when you look at um, the rural areas of the state, I would think they depend quite a bit on the AEAs. They don't have a lot of extra money to spend. And um, the AEAs have a responsibility to go where the students are. Correct. And that is the beauty of the system, that we can hire them and then make sure that they are assigned out to all parts of our agency. And the needs are probably small in most of our rural areas, and yet the need is still there. And so how would you hire somebody to come one day a week or only one day every other week? It's, it's not an efficient or effective system. And you probably couldn't find somebody, and you'd have to do your own um, assembling together of neighboring school districts. So what you would get is many more mini AEAs, why don't we just strengthen the ones that we have? And if we need to reduce, let's look at that. Uh, we can always find more efficiencies, but let's not burden rural Iowa with an, uh, a lack of access to the services that they need for their students. This was probably a week ago or more. I was here listening to the governor. She said, you know, the AEAs do fine, but they can do better. And she really did not extrapolate on what would be better and how that would work. I genuinely believe that the governor has the best interest at heart Um, The bill just doesn't spell out how the student achievement is going to increase, and that was the thing that was really glaring, that it was all about transferring authority to the Department of Education, but there wasn't anything in the bill that addressed that achievement gap. So we welcome uh, the governor um, pushing us to, to do better. We'd love to be part of that conversation on how we can help all kids succeed. Uh, And so, yes, I I agree. It's those details that really matter, and and that's what was missing. I think there's concern, too, about um, some of the employees of the AEAs losing their positions. Uh, Yes, and again, it would be uh, back to the the same position that there are so many questions that were generated uh, because the bill didn't spell out some of those provisions. And so it it is uh, an uncertainty that would disrupt the system because people are going to migrate to a position where they have some longevity and they know I'll be employed longer than the next 12 months. That's a flaw in this system. If schools could choose uh, on a one-year basis and then opt out, uh, who will take a job knowing I may not have a job next year? 
And I know you're working with the leaders of the other AEAs across the state. Uh, I'm assuming you have a strategy to kind of go forward with this. Yeah, we meet monthly, and that's a normal pattern for us because we want to be on the same page as one another. We don't want there to be nine different experiences across the state. And so we've had additional meetings to make sure that uh, we understand what the issues are uh, from the governor and then how we can move the system forward. So we do collaborate on a weekly and sometimes daily basis. Do you feel like with what happened this week, do you feel like there is an opportunity now to make changes in this or even kind of stop it as it is? I think we have a great opportunity. Uh, As a reminder, the Republicans have a majority in the House and the Senate, and that's unlikely to change this fall. We have a Republican governor. So there could be a task force put together. They could spend the next six months getting lots of stakeholder input. They could have some recommendations ready to go by the fall. And then it could be the first bill passed in 2025. And it would be done with public support because the public would have been involved along the way. Once you see how this all works, you've got the teachers, you have social workers, you have therapists. They spend a lot of time with these kids and they are very invested on a local level. And that's something I think some of the parents say they don't want to change. That's why we're uh, such an unknown because unless you've had children who have benefited from services or grandkids or maybe even a neighbor, you probably don't know what the area education agency is or what they do. Oh yeah. It's important to reach out to your local legislator and say, thank you. Thank you for listening to the thousands of Iowans who have said, No, this is too much, too fast. Thank you for slowing this process down. Just thank you for the work that you do in Des Moines. We we appreciate that. That was Dan Cox. He is the chief administrator for the Northwest Area Education Agency in Sioux City. Recently, Governor Kim Reynolds promoted a bill that would rearrange just how those AEAs work with the state. Iowa Senate Republicans moved the bill overhauling the AEAs forward out of a subcommittee last week, but House Republicans declined to advance it, and both are still looking at options to reform the state's special education system. Support for the exchange comes from Gregory Giles, investment advisor representative with Legacy Financial LLC in Sioux City serving the financial planning and investment needs of clients since 2004. Information about Legacy Financial and Greg Giles is available at LegacyFinancialLLC.com. Financial planning and advisory services offered through RDA Financial Network. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Mary Hartnett. February is Black History Month, and the Sioux City Public Museum started it off with a special event with an open dialogue and presentation honoring black sports heroes from Sioux City and Sioux City Central High School in particular. Paving the Way, Black Sports Heroes of Sioux City Central High School was held Saturday morning. Central High opened in the spring of 1893 and closed in 1972. Now the building is an apartment complex. The discussion was led by the leader of the Sioux City NAACP, Ike Rayford. You know, and folks, we we definitely want this to to, to be a, uh, this is definitely not a monologue. I am not, we want dialogue. And so uh, we are here to definitely talk about, uh, you know, it's it's the Kickstarter of our Black History programs and month. And so uh, we want to talk about uh, those athletes that uh, had so much influence and, and so much success. 
At the event, Jim Tillman, a filmmaker and author of Black History Books, showed a short film that told the stories of the lives of several of Sioux City's black athletes who made history. In 1904, Sioux City Central High's first black athlete was Leland Washington, who later earned a spot on the All-Iowa football team. Tillman is the author of two books on black history in Sioux City. One is The Black Experience, 1950s Sioux City, Iowa, and the other is The Journal of African American History, Sioux City, Iowa. Those in attendance shared their stories about legendary black athletes from Central High and talked about how their legacy lives on. Jim Tillman said he was really gratified to see the interest in the program and the history about a school that closed so many years ago, especially from past graduates and their families. It was, uh, it was a great time today. We're sharing stories, and as we, um, you know, I showed the video, and then that spurred a lot of memories. And it was just a, just a good atmosphere today. It was, it was good to have Daryl C. here, 94-year-old Daryl C. His daughter was, was Cindy C., Cindy Washinoski. We ran together, about that same age group. But yeah, Daryl C. always had uh, had uh, the kids at, at heart. And he, uh, like I said, he gave me a coaching opportunity my senior year at West High when I um, was invited to coach, help coach the Dodgers. So uh, I didn't coach after that, so that was uh, coaching wasn't for me. But it was a great experience, lifelong memories. And it's important to keep the tradition and the history of Central alive. Central's been closed for what, since 1972. It, uh, but history brings it back alive. It's sad, I think, of all that generation dying, and all of that history is, feels like it's lost. It's, it's kind of sad. Well, it, it really is, and a lot, some history has been, uh, you know, the records, the, the trophies. Uh, sometimes uh, people have just thrown it out. A lot, of home, a lot of home fires have destroyed history because they lost it in the fire. So anytime we can share history and bring it back to life, that's, that's important. Do you think it's, it's harder to kind of look at history and tradition of black athletes as less known and less talked about? Is that part of why you wanted to do this research and write the books? That's exactly why. Um, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, the coverage was different. They didn't really highlight the best of the black athlete, unless you were really exceptional, and my uncles were, all the Lees, Chuck Daniels. But even at that, um, there was a distinction how the media covered them, because there were, uh, you know, there were the uh, Negro athlete back then, and then there were the he was, you know. So anyway, times have changed, and uh, um, you know, we've come a long way, and we uh, we move forward. Were you surprised how many stories people had? And you know, it wasn't like a ton of people here, but they, the ones that were here had a lot of stories. They really did, and there was a lot of energy and excitement, and so uh, the, just the memory of Central, the tradition, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it'll live on forever in Sioux City. I, I imagine you've seen the, the high school athletics, the display here. Are these the kind of things you don't see much? Have you talked a little, I just wanted to go back to, you know, the kind of memorabilia. Is You were saying it's hard to find this stuff, so it's probably a great thing to be able to have some of this. Absolutely. And this event, we can share different pictures that Darrell C. brought. He brought the trophy from 1947, uh, the, the picture from Harbeck, uh, 
Harbeck Footwear. They were sponsoring a, a softball team. Legends in that picture. So, so it's uh, it's the history is still out there. You just kind of got to keep digging and have events like this, and stuff pops up, and you ask people if they have it. You have to ask them, and you'll be surprised. That was Jim Tillman, the author of two books on black history in Sioux City. One of them is The Black Experience, 1950s, Sioux City, Iowa. He's also created a short film about black athletes in Siouxland. The event was put together by the NAACP of Sioux City. I talked to Ike Rayford after the event about why he felt it was so important to have this conversation about black athletes. You talk about athletes, you talk about people who've, who've been leaders in the community. It seems you guys have really kind of gone far and wide, a wide range of different leaders and people. Absolutely. We have to because obviously we want to make sure that we pay homage to those that have come before us. And growing up, you know, it was always kind of the same, right? It was Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, you know, Ida B. Jones, you know, all of those. Uh, but then we know that, guess what? Those were There are places that, that some of those big names did never come or, you know, couldn't because of for whatever reason. What about those that were here fighting, those that were here living, those that were here putting in the work. And so uh, we want to celebrate those folks. And I'm glad that I get an opportunity to be a part of that celebration uh, so that who comes behind me will be able to, to know their history. That was Ike Rayford, the president of the NAACP of Sioux City. I talked with him about some of the events coming up to celebrate Black History Month. One of them is going to be here at Western Iowa Tech Community College, the Power of Hair Expo, and it will be next Thursday, February 15th at 11 a.m. in Cargill Auditorium. It's an event that includes an educational presentation and modeling component to it, and other culturally specific and celebratory facets are included as well. To find out more, contact Lashana Moyle at Western Iowa Tech go to witcc.edu to learn more. heard from Jim Tillman about some of the black athletes that played high school football, basketball, and other sports in Siouxland. And now we're going to take a look at the Sioux City Ghosts. They were an all-black fast-pitch softball team that started in Sioux City and toured the U.S., Canada, and Mexico during the 1930s and played into the 1950s. Here's Jim Scott's take on the Ghosts in another small wonder. Sioux City Ghosts. Look, it's hard to take a ball team seriously if the bunch comes out in the diamond with uniforms that say, Whiting's Cleaners, we clean everything but fish. But then when the Sioux City Ghosts took the field, nobody expected anything serious except seriously uncommon softball talent. Let's just say it this way. The Sioux City Ghosts became a phenom on half the sandlots in the country. Once they played a game in a pasture, lots of messy bass-like pies beneath their shoes. Maybe 50 fans were watching just off the baselines. Seriously. No matter. Frank 
Papa Be Kind Williams, one of the old timers, once told a reporter that 50 fans or 50,000 riding the bleachers made no difference to the guys. What they loved to do was play ball and have fun, no matter if they stepped on or, or in the wrong base. And fans came to roar with laughter. Sioux City, born and reared, the Ghosts picked up games with only the best local teams, but never let what happened on the field get too demanding or serious. One of their most beloved shticks was shadow ball, which meant they're playing a couple of innings without the ball, acting as if it was there just the same every last player in pantomime, sometimes even in slow motion. Fans, and there were many, went entirely bananas, if they weren't laughing the moment they sat down already. Some people called them the globe trotters of softball. So blame antic was their show. Now let's be clear here. The ghosts were splendidly multi-talented. For a time pre-depression, come December, they simply switched sports, went inside and took the court as a basketball team. And you think that's something? There's more. More than occasionally, and much to the delight of awestruck fans, they break into song. Why not? People love the good male chorus. You couldn't be a ghost and be married. Traveling was the pits on marriages, after all. And, of course, you had to be African-American. The ghosts had no traveling patsies like the Globetrotters, either. They made a habit out of playing the best softball teams wherever they went. How'd they do? I thought you'd never ask. In somewhere close to 20 years of ball games, they took it on the chin a hundred times, but they won more than 2,000 games against really good teams. During the Second World War, most of the team was in the South Pacific or Europe with the armed forces. When the war ended, the Sioux City Ghost once more took the field and toured throughout the West pulling their goofiness along wherever they went, using horses to run the bases or a bicycle. So maybe one game, one of the Williams boys is pitching. They started the team. When he simply throws the umpire out of the game and grabs a six-year-old out of the crowd to calls balls and strikes. Then he tells that child to call a pitch a strike even though it went over the backstop. Kid says, strike! Crowd goes bananas. Today, Playing pro in the bigs means big salaries, not back then. Maybe 25 bucks a game in a season between 80 and 90 games long. The Sioux City Ghosts were much beloved here and all over the country. All of that was 75 years ago. Times were different. Oh yeah, and every last one of those whiting cleaner uniforms said, we clean everything but fish. What's not to like? Support for Small Wonders on Siouxland Public Media comes from the Daniels Osborne Law Firm in the Ho-Chunk Center in downtown Sioux City, serving the needs of clients in real estate transactions, business formation and guidance, and personal estate planning. More information is available on Facebook or at danielsosborne.com. Support for Siouxland Public Media comes from Unity Point Health St. Luke's Cardiology Services. We are your partners in heart health. Our team of dedicated experts is here for you, offering advanced cardiology services right here in Siouxland. Explore our services online at unitypoint.org. 
Well, that's it for this edition of The Exchange. I'm Mary Hartnett. Thanks to Steve Smith and Mark Munger. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.